have known each other in a long time. And that's, a, that's something I really value is people I have history with. Mm-hmm. And it's great to have history with you. Thank you, man, for coming and doing this today. You're welcome. Well, as uh, we both know, I live in Portland. You live in Vancouver, Washington, which is just over the river. So we're just a few minutes away from each other. Yeah, now. But, man, you were in uh, Hawaii, what, nine, ten years, uh, 11 total years? Of about 13 years. That's a I've long time. I've done three time. films there. I did uh, Lost for two years and then Hawaii Five-0 for 10. That's a long time to be on a TV show. It was, and what I'm finding now that anybody in the audience that's done something like this, when you say no to people that call you for 13 years, they stop calling you. Jeff who? Yeah. Jeff Don Rolodex cart. (laughs) Eh, he's not available ever again. He's dead to us. Oh, he's off on an island. He's off, yeah. yeah, And then he's going to retire. Is he still alive? No, I'm available. (laughs) You know, I I visited... uh, the islands a bit. That's one thing to go there for a weekend or even a week for you to be there for over a decade. How did you, did you like that? Well, I, I loved it. The islands, they, they, they say something when you move to the islands that if you're right for the islands, it will hold you there. If you're wrong, it kicks you off. And I saw that over and over with people who come in, ah, you know, they just weren't the right flow for that aloha spirit of the islands. And, uh, they were gone for whatever reason, their choice or somebody else's choice with me. It was a good fit for me. I had great respect for their, their history. It's just like traveling around the world. You respect mm-hmm. their land, their history, their food, their, 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 their language, their people, and you're one of them. So the whole idea, the word Howley means foreigner, mm. but it's mostly portrayed towards people from the mainland, white people from the mainland, but it does mean foreigner. And uh, I was a Howley, okay? Mm. I would, we would make fun of that, but it was mm-hmm. never said in a derogatory way towards me because people sensed my respect for their way of doing things. So I loved it. Um, it. You get island fever, they call it over there, and most people just travel to another island or they go back to the mainland for a little while. I was able to leave the island for several months during hiatus each mm-hmm. year. So, you know, there was always an open door for me, when, knowing that when I moved there, that nine months later, after coming back several times for holidays, I'd be able to leave again for three months. I imagine, too, I was just thinking, you're doing episodic television, so you're doing, what, like 60, 70-hour weeks? <laughs> I checked my my um, uh, Social Security statement for yeah. the last 10 years. Yeah. I averaged 84 hours a week. <laughs> That's what department heading does for you. So you're, you're basically, you're either on set or you're sleeping, except oh, yeah. for that, you know, you've got your fratter day. Well, yeah. The, the, the only way to make up time and do something else is to get less sleep. So that's one thing I thought about being there. It's like, okay, you're, it's that same rhythm of what you're doing already, mm-hmm. and, but you're not, you're not getting out on the town much. You're not you know, getting no. out and, oh, let's, let's go snorkeling today, or you're probably doing something on your day Well, off. what happens is when, you, when you're working in Hawaii, it would be like living next to Disneyland. Everyone wants to visit you, and then they want to explore the island because they were able to come over, stay with me for free. I had a two-room two, uh, place, and um, I was able to get them discounts and tell them where to go and all of that. So I had endless people visiting. And they would come to the set and visit also. But for the most part, they knew that I was off the map for most of the daylight hours. Yeah, that's the way I think it is. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I do an interview with somebody, I always print out the IMDb. And always want to have that. Even even somebody like you who I've known like for so long. Right. And every time I do it, I go, oh, they did that? I forgot they did that. You know one thing that was fun for me on this one? What's that? The one for you today. You know, when, okay, looking at how you started, I went, okay, 1982, a day in Eden. 
does then you go ABC weekend specials Stranger Kiss Chattanooga Choo Choo and then the Terminator and all of a sudden bam yes <laughs> if you well, would put four it, projects in you're yes an, and, an and, action you know, film. and those were those were fun non union projects yeah. um, I was non union for the first five years although I come from a long family and I thought I was going to be able to get in right away it took me five years. But I knew from the minute I got into the business that I wanted department head feature films. Mm -hmm. Back in the 80s, feature films were the way to go. That was the top rung of the ladder. TV was the redheaded stepchild. Apologize to any redheaded stepchildren out there. And now it's a different story. TV is filled with Academy Award winners. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's so well done and so respected that it's a whole different ballgame now. But back then, I just wanted department head features, and that's what I did. So I did that for five years, and then I started slowly getting into some union stuff. But yeah, when Terminator 1 called... Four projects in, you, boom, you're into Terminator. Yeah. yeah, well, keep in mind, that took... Um, well, I started in 81, and a Terminator filmed in 84. Mm. And I got a, in as the uh, got in a, the local 706 Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Union in Southern California in uh, in 86. You know, I listened to the podcast that you told me uh, was Christian Toto. Right. And... I was listening to some of that and hearing your story, I went, that's different than what I remembered. See, I thought you, you got onto Terminator because you were working with Stan. No. And it was the other way around. You were end up working with Stan because you got, got in for Terminator. Right. The, the, the story with, of, of working on Terminator was I got a call to go in and meet with this uh, director, unknown director at the time, James Cameron, and his producer, Gail Enhard, on this picture coming up called uh, Terminator. Well, I was a huge bodybuilder fan and Arnold Schwarzenegger fan at the time. So I remember going down and picking up what used to be called Dramalog. It was a, the, mm -hmm. the, the rag that you could buy on the newsstand that told about all the films coming up. They didn't have the internet services and such that they do nowadays. And I remember looking at it and going, Arnold Schwarzenegger's going to be in this? Because I thought, okay, when I got into makeup, maybe someday I'll bump into him on a studio lot or something because he's doing films and now I'm doing films. So... I go up and I interview with James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd, and they're like, great. You know, I had, I had prosthetic experience. I had department head experience. I was willing to do it for $800 a week, you know, <laughs> at the time, which was, which was low budget. The whole film was done for, I think, uh, like $6.6 .6 Yeah, they did for a song. 10 weeks. And so I was the right person for the job. And they said, okay, you're hired. You just have to go sign off with Stan Winston. Stan Winston is doing our special makeup effects and, and, the, and, and the, the animatronics and such. And he has it in his deal that he gets to sign off on the makeup department. So I went in a few days later and I met with Stan Winston and I knew Stan. He knew of me. Of course, he knew my father because they were both um, in the same circle. We had a nice conversation. He said, great, kid. Welcome to the show. And he said, uh, we're going to have a test on Arnold next week in my lab. I'd like you to come and observe. Great. So I'm all nervous. I'm going to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger and and I go in there, and Stan's guys are in there. The makeup room is set up. We were going to do some prosthetic covers over the eyebrows. Mm -hmm. um, back then, we were only using foam latex prosthetics, and these were eyebrows to cover up his eyebrows after he runs through fire and they're burned off, and he spends half the film like that. So I go in, and everybody's in there. Everything's laid out on the table. All of a sudden, Arnold walks in. Hey, everybody, you look fantastic. How's it going in here? And I'm like, oh. Schwarzenegger. He was exactly my height. Of course, built a little differently. Um, nervous as hell, but just in heaven at that moment. He sits down. Nobody's doing anything. Nobody's touching him. I'm like, I think I'm supposed to be here to, to, to watch. Yeah, so you said, Stan said you're there to observe. Yeah, and I'm like, 
oh, okay, this might be the best thing I ever do in my life or the worst. And I just grabbed the prosthetic and I started putting it on. They turned out great. I don't know if this was a plan for Stan, because of course we've lost Stan many years ago, um, and um, Stan was always quite the mentor to me. But he called me into his office afterwards, and he goes, hey kid, I watched what you did in there, that turned out really good. He said, I wasn't sure if you were going to be part, if you are just going to be the department head, or you were going to be part of the makeup application team. I want you to run the makeup application team too. So it was always myself, and oftentimes one or two of Stan's guys also on Terminator mm -hmm. 1, but I took a chance. I rolled the dice, and I guess it was the right choice. That it, it turned out really well. Was Peter with you on that? With Terminator 1, he was. Peter Tothpol, a hairstylist from Hungary that's now yeah. semi-retired, and Peter and I have done 35 films together as department heads. I saw that you had worked with him before Terminator. That was yes. one of the things that, oh, yes. look at that. You yeah. guys actually met before then. Yeah, we would hire each other on these different films, and we were yeah. just a team for a long time. Thirty, It's like 34 or 35 films as department heads. That's a lot of time together. Yeah, yeah, a lot of times in the trenches together. Yes. Now, most people know, but uh, we should probably tell them, is that you know, your third-generation makeup artist, your grandfather... MGM for 15 years does the Wizard of Oz and who hasn't seen Wizard of Oz <laughs> that you have that and, and your dad I ended up watching a lot of your dad's work when I was a kid because mm -hmm. he was on Mission Impossible in fact he caused us a lot of problems because he got everybody thinking oh you just need an aerosol can you just spray it on somebody's face and you can pull off an entire <laughs> copy of somebody's face eyebrows mustache the whole right. thing right out of that aerosol can. yeah isn't it amazing when back then in the, in the late 60s early 70s they would have these pullover masks and you'd, just, you'd start to pull it over on somebody, and then suddenly they pretend to be tucking it in, and then they turn around to the camera, and it's the real actor, and you think, wow, that mask is so good. Yeah. I mean, even nowadays, it's very difficult to do that, and they you can't sell it close up like this. But audiences were actually were rolling with that back then. That's a difference yeah. now. Now everybody's an expert. Right. Shoot my sons all the time. He's like, oh, that wouldn't, that, that, that's not real. That wouldn't be that. Right, everybody's right. a critic, and... But there's just a lot more sophistication now. But so cool that that he did uh, that, and you also he did so many things. And also your uncle mm -hmm. was in the business. West right? Dawn, yeah, yeah. They were both in the business for about 35 years. Um, well respected department heads. A lot of special effects makeup. My dad won uh, an Emmy for for Mission Impossible. And uh, so I'm very fortunate. And of course, my grandfather. So I came along at third generation. My son is in the film business, but he wasn't interested in makeup. But he's the fourth generation in the film business and of the Dawns. Yeah, what is Patrick doing? Is he editing or is he Patrick looks directing? Like, looks like Patrick is going to say this premature because I just heard this today. He's been looking to get a job at Leica over mm -hmm. in, in Beaverton up here in Portland. It's, a, it's an animation studio, a very respected animation studio in the world. And uh, it looks like he's probably got a job there. They did the final interview today, and it looks like he's got it. So Very cool. He has hundreds of hours as a PA. He went to Chapman University in Orange, California, to get his film degree. And like most people that are getting their film degree, they want to end up being a, a writer or a director or something like mm -hmm. that. And they end up being a grip or a PA or an assistant director or whatever's available. Good for him. Yeah. You know, one thing, man, is you are... You're one of the smarter guys, I think, in our business. I've always held you in that high regard. I'm really good very at smart. that. Well, it's working really well. <laughs> you're one of the smart guys, and you're also, I think, one of the more successful makeup artists as far as somebody being a department head and is also doing personals, and you've, you've kind of done uh, pretty much all of it. I wanted to kind of 
we could end up talking about this and sharing with people is your approach and the way that you do that. The, and what I'm talking about is like presentation. I know that you have ways that you go about going after a project and let's, let's just start there. Why don't we talk about how it is when you find a project that you want to, to be a part of, how do you approach it? Well, I, I do a lot of lecturing and a lot of podcasts, as you know, and a big part of it is selling yourself, getting hired, not getting fired. Very, you know, got to be with HR and social media and a hundred different mind traps out there in a film and television business. It's very easy to get fired. Um, I learned a lesson when I first started because I wanted to be a department head and not work for other people. I wanted to be the one responsible for all the makeups and the hiring and all that because I generally volunteer for everything. I kind of have a leader gene in me that says, okay, follow me. Hopefully not off the cliff. And I went in for a show my dad wasn't available to do. It was a non-union show with a producer named Bob Rosen, who was a friend of my dad's back in the day. They'd done lots of big Frankenheimer films and all kinds of things. My dad mm -hmm. couldn't do it. It was low budget. I could do it. It was an action film. Oh, I wanted to do it. I read it. I was prepared for it. And I went in and I was talking with this guy and this producer. And I was probably 25 and he was probably 55 at the time. Tons of experience. Needless to say, I was a little intimidated and scared. And he finally leans back and says, Jeff, you know what I'm really looking for? I'm really looking for a guy like your dad. I love your dad. He's, he's done well for me. That's who we're looking for. And in that moment, I knew he didn't have it because my response was, oh, well, um, you know, I, 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 I can do that. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't get the show, and I realized in that moment what I did wrong. Hmm. What so would I, you think you should have done? I different? would have looked right at him and said, sir, I am not my father in experience, but I have his heart, his soul. I have his passion. He's taught me so much. I guarantee you, if you hire me at the end of this film, you're going to shake my hand and say, Jeff, you were right in that meeting. I'm really glad I hired you. You're not your father, but yeah. damn it, you're the closest thing to it. Well done. And you could also and say, if I run up against anything, I have my father as a resource. Oh, you, you, there's so many things, and it's, it's all attitude. As mm -hmm. you know, we as department heads, we hire off of attitude. I expect people to be able to do the makeup and to have the, the, the right talents for it. That can be taught. That can be bought. Mm -hmm. Attitude can't be. Every department head out there tells audiences, myself included, it's attitude. Are you willing to jump on a grenade for this project, for the department head? So when you are out for a job, you need to say, what does this... Another, another one was a rock video back in the day. And they said, well, Jeff, we have to do this bald cap on a woman who has hair down to her butt. Can you do that? And by then, I was like, <laughs> you're talking to the right person. Bald caps is something I'm known for. I've done just that before. When I do this bald cap, you're going to be very happy. Well, they hired me. Well, of course, I walked out of there going, oh, I know how to do ball caps, but how am I going to do this? <laughs> well, I had two weeks before this thing shot. So I called Peter and I said, Peter, I got to do this. What do I do? And I got a, went over to his house and he showed me how to wrap hair and to keep it as tight as possible. And then I did this on my wife, Cheryl, and experimented and tortured the hell out of her. Um, with pulling her hair up and pinning it and putting a bald cap on and doing that. I did that two or three times. Well, on the day that I did it, they walked out on set, and everybody gave me a standing ovation. Nice. And I thought, okay, I got the job from a bluff, mm -hmm. but then I made it happen for real. And, you know, they say you can, 
you know, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. You better be prepared. If you say you can fly that plane, you better know how to fly a plane. That is true. You, know. you couldn't run the hair d- uh, just down the uh, her back and, and bring it down. With no, because it needed to be three. It. Yeah, it, it, believe me, I tried everything. I said, yeah. you know, can't we? Because she had a very skimpy outfit on, like almost mm-hmm. like this one-piece bathing suit. And she was dancing on a stage. It was a rock video for I can't remember what the rock mm. uh, the band was. And, um, yeah, so it, it had to look good from all angles. And, of course, it had a little bit of bulk to it, but it didn't look like some alien makeup. It looked pretty darn good. We made it happen. Yeah. Siblings. You got mm-hmm. brothers and sisters? I had a brother, Chris, who was uh, seven years older than me. He unfortunately passed away in uh, 2009 from cancer. He was only 51 years old. Mm. But he didn't go into the business? He didn't. He chose not to go in the business. Um, it wasn't his his forte, and he was always good at anything he did. So if he chose to get into it, I'm sure he would have done a great job. You know, a lot of one a piece that really helps make you successful, I think, really is your attitude. And you are a very positive person, very can-do. Was your dad that way? He was. My dad was, my. I think of my dad and my uncle is not as strong a makeup department heads as I was. I have been. Um, equally as talented in makeup, but they were better people. They would take time with people. I mean, my uncle and my dad always had people living at their house. He would take these people in that were on film sets or somebody doesn't have a car, he'd drive them to work every day. I mean, for years I had people after they passed away coming up to me and say, did your dad ever tell you that how much he helped me or saved me or whatever? So I try to do that. I try to help people in any way I can because it's in the genes. They just had people flocking to them. And, and he would help them. So in the business world, I was stronger. In the makeup world, we were equal. And in the humanitarian world, they were superior. Mm. But they are still out there guiding me. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's an interesting time for them, too, because it was a smaller business then. Very much so. I mean, it was a smaller business when you and I got sure. in. But it was certainly small when, when they were in. There were probably, what, 300 makeup artists or something like oh, that yeah. in 706? Well, that, well, that's how I got in the makeup union because I was able to do prosthetics. And back then, this was before the Star Trek shows and TV shows and such, which you worked on quite a bit, that made a lot of the prosthetic makeup people out there nowadays. There was a dozen people that could do prosthetics. Well, I was one of them. So that's how I was able to get my foot in the door. And what did you get your days on? You said it took you five, like four took or five me, years? Yeah, four or five years until finally... What happened was I found, I, I'd been doing non-union films, and I found out after my father passed away, he died of a heart attack in uh, 90, no, 83. How old was he? 61. He died on the film Christine for um, mm. uh, John Carpenter. And at the end, it says, in memory of, of Bob Dawn. That's right. And so what I found out later, once I got in the union and I was on Star Trek Four working with my Uncle West Dawn at the time, and... Um, what I found out once I got in the union is Wes came to me with tears in his eyes and he said, Jeff, I got to tell you something. Your dad came to me not long before he passed away and he passed away in his sleep in Wes's house in Los Angeles while mm. he was working on Christine. And he said, you know, if anything happens, happens to me, you keep an eye on my kid. He's hardworking. He's a good makeup artist. 
he's having trouble getting a union. I want to really do what I can. And he's like, Bob, nothing's going to happen to you. You're fine. Don't worry. But yes, I promise you this. Well, my dad passed away shortly after that. And Wes really put it into high gear. Yeah, he took that to heart. Yeah, I did um, um, I did Star Trek three. I did Star Trek four. I did Star Trek five once I was in the union. Uh, I did um, uh, a, a, an ABC uh, special called... Um, um, it was a it was a Halloween special of some kind, lots of makeup. He got me in on that. I did a movie called Let's Get Harry Down in Mexico, an action film. So those are the movies that got and the projects that got me my days. And then I had back then we had tests. We had a two day test mm -hmm. to do through the union, and they would they would uh, you know, they would fail you if you didn't do it right. So I well, you had a two day test. That. It was a two day test. So you must be at the end of that two day that when that was, I because it was a one day. When I was there and had been gone for a little bit, so you probably caught the end of it. Yeah, was the first was in, one a written? This was in '86. I don't remember a written. I remember a two-day practical, and it was yeah. at Warner Brothers Studios. Mm -hmm. Leo Latito was head of the makeup department at the time, who was a buddy of my dad's. And I remember going in there the day before, and he knew me, and I knew him. I said, "Mr. Latito, do you mind if I set my station up now?" Because I knew the next day you'd come in there and you'd be so nervous, and you're looking at the time, and there are all these judges are there. And he said, sure. So in my usual like to over-prepare, Arnold used to say there's kill, there's overkill, and there's Jeff kill. <laughs> I love that. And I said, okay, what can I do to prepare? So I went and I, I set everything up. I had a clock on the wall so that my model, I could say time, and she'd say, you got 15 minutes. You know, We just had a dance ready to go. And I had everything laid out, everything prepped, because I knew what we were going to be doing. So I walked in the next day, and I'm like, ah, oh, let me see, I want some coffee. And everybody's like, ah, oh, where do I set up? Of course, I got the best station, mm -hmm. you know, the best lights and all that. So that just took, it, it's all about preparation. You want to prepare the hell out of things so that every potential failure factor is taken care of ahead of time. Nice. And that's so, so completely who you are to make something bulletproof, to yeah, use your words. Yeah, you, do, you, you, know, you, don't, you can't guarantee anything, but when they're paying you good money, and also we have a responsibility as makeup departments of getting the actors on the set. When I'm in a position to be hired, I say, look, you can get anybody that can do the makeup. Can I do it better than most? Probably. Is it necessary? Maybe not. You're hiring my experience and my attitude. I have an infectious, positive attitude that's not only going to come across in my crew, it's going to come across in the whole crew, and more importantly, it's going to come across in your actors. Actors come in in the morning and they're, eh, I want to be here, I'm tired, I'm sleepy. You know, it's my job, along with my crew, make sure they get fed, make sure that they look right continuity-wise, and make sure that they're ready to walk out there and kick ass that day. Because I'll say to an actor, okay, I've heard you. That really sucks. We've had this conversation. Let's change gears. You're looking great. Why don't you take that energy you're giving me right now and put it on screen? This podcast is made possible by the support of our friends at Omnia, a division of Royal Brush. They've been making brushes for over 70 years, and they're dedicated to professional makeup artists around the world. That's the kind of company you'll want to support, and that's why their brushes are in my kit. By supporting them, you're supporting this podcast. Check them out at omniabrush.com. And I think when somebody brings you in as a department head, it's one of the things when I was working with you, I was surprised to find out is what you your case rental is, if we're going to call it a case rental, if what that is categorically. Right. You know, which, you know, for a lot of people, it's just the couple of cases they're bringing in, what have right. you. When somebody hires you, 
It's, they, it's they, a significant store. Yeah, they get a lot. What are they what are they getting when, when well, they hire you? As a department head, of course, we all have to have our hair goods. And as a makeup artist, your hair goods are things for facial hair. Your, 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 your fake beards and your stoves and your ovens and your irons and all of that. Um, of course, all of your makeup supplies and your brushes and your special effects supplies, which are endless. Uh, a flocker to make a flocked fake beard. Um, I have all my own walkie-talkies. That's something that I'm known for in the business now. There's only three department heads that use walkie-talkies. Myself, mm -hmm. Steve Laporte, and Howard Berger. Hmm. And they, all three of them will work for me. And they learned walkie-talkies are a good thing. First assistant directors do not want makeup to have a walkie-talkie in the, in the trailer. Because what happens when they, on the walkie-talkie, you hear in the trailer... Where the hell is that actor? They've been in makeup for an hour. We're waiting for him. You tell that actor to get his ass out here. Well, that actor is going to grab that radio and go, excuse me? Mm -hmm. So first assistant directors are terrified of that. So I have to go up to each one that I haven't worked with and go, look, at. I have all my own walkies. I have all my own headsets. There's never an open walkie in the trailer. I always have a walkie in my ear. You are going to find it incredibly helpful to have me and my team on walkie. And I guarantee you, you will not resent, re regret this. Do they give you pushback on that? Not once they say that. Also, you know, after being in the business 41 years and telling them I've had my own walkies for 40 of those mm -hmm. and there's never been a problem, they're like, okay. And then later on, and I tell them the same thing. You're going to come to me later on and say, this was a good thing, you guys being on walkie, which it is. It's a fantastic thing. And even to the point where when I was designing and building my own trailers, I would have a trailer where my station was in the middle and there was a door right behind me with a window. And I would tell the base camp PA, who's always coming in in the morning going, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer? Mm -hmm. They would walk by and I could see them. The actor can't see them because they have their back to them, to the window that's right behind the actor, and they're looking in the mirror. But I can look at the actor and glance over and see them. And the actor, or the, the, the PA would say, hey, Jeff, I know you can hear me. How long do you have with the actor? And I would take my sponge over the actor's eyes and go, close your eyes. And I'd pretend to do some makeup and I would go. So then you know, Oh, thanks, 10 Jeff. Minutes. Ten minutes. Yep. And the actor never knows. It's just a little communication kind of a highway that was always fun to have. I never caught you And the doing PAs that. never Didn't had to come it. in, you know, which I don't mind. I get along very well with PAs. My own son was a PA for years. I've always been very crew animal friendly. Mm -hmm. When people bring, because this is a big pet peeve for a lot of uh, a lot of uh, makeup department heads, because actors and actresses like to bring their dogs and their pets and things in. I don't mind at all. I, I'm a big animal fan. I, I tell people I would rather have a stranger's dog down at my feet that I have to step around and step over while I'm doing a makeup than not have the dog there at all. Hmm. I just I like that energy, you know, which makes it easier for. I don't let people smoke in the trailer ever. They're going to eat. That's a given because they only have so much time. So you've got to let them eat. They're going to be on their phone. They're going to be sleeping. They're going to be talking to people and having meetings. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were doing Terminator uh, 2, Arnold was president's counsel in physical fitness for George Bush. Mm -hmm. Constantly had people coming in in meetings. And, you know, it's myself and Steve Laporte working on him for hours a day. Um, and then Terminator 3 also, but he would have these meetings going on. He would be eating, and there'd be times that he would have somebody massaging his shoulders, and I would have somebody doing his hand, and then Steve and I would be doing his face. And you get used to this tight little world right around the chair, and you'd have a communication. Steve, how are you doing outside with, with the orange stipple? 
you know, good. You ready for do si do? Yep, okay. I'm with brown, let's say. Let's do si do. And we'd change around. And then he would do the orange on this side, and I'd do the brown on that side. It just became a very smooth machine, even with all that craziness. Yeah, I always that's my memory of Arnold, always on the phone. Because yes. I think when we were doing, I think it was a racer, he was, I think that's when he was doing the Planet Hollywood stuff then. Oh, yeah. So he was always on the phone. Well, he, Constantly you know, working. He's, he's such a strong businessman with his real estate. He was involved with Planet Hollywood for years. Then the President's Council on Physical Fitness. He is head of a couple of large um, uh, um, uh, groups like, um, um, oh, what is it, after-school groups for kids to stay out of trouble, mm-hmm. um, uh, Special Olympics, you know, huge positions in these huge things. Mm-hmm. And, but Arnold's... Arnold could get along with so little sleep, it amazed me. He would sleep four or five hours a night and just be go, go, go all day. One of the hardest working guys in show business. Yep. You used to get the software that the studio accountants use. Do you still do that? Um, I learned a long time ago the best way to run a department is to think, act, and talk like an accountant. You get to know the accountants. You get to know the production manager. You get to know the producers. I tell people now, I go, I pretend to be a makeup artist. I actually want to be first AD slash production manager, producer. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of agree with that once they get to know me. Um, I got very involved early on with accountants because accountants typically, you'll go in and say, hey, I need some more money for the, uh, uh, you know, for, for the hair department or whatever. And they'll like, oh, let's see. Yeah, you got another $100 you can spend. Well, I don't want that. I want to know. I want to go in there and know how I'm doing, where I'm hitting, where I'm not. If I need to spend an extra $1,000 on makeup, I can say, but I'm saving you $1,500 on labor because I'm sending your 12-hour-a-day people home after 10 or 8. You know, So you, it's very, very important to do the budget, to do it accurately, and to speak the way they speak because then they'll speak back to you. And I find that when you do that, you get yeses. People always ask, Jeff, other departments, how do you get them to say yes to more time or another trailer or more money or more supplies? You always get yeses, I go. Not always, but most of the time. The key with a yes is when you go to a production manager, they're so used to people dumping problems on their desk. I got a problem here. Help me fix it. You got to go to them and say, here's the problem, and this is how it's manifested over the last few days. This is my suggestion in fixing it. This is what it's going to cost, or this is what it will impact. What do you think? Because you're not telling this person who's your boss what they have to do. Mm-hmm. You're giving them your best opinion that's well thought out and very um, financially um, uh, you know, appropriate, and then you're asking their opinion. Every single time they'll say, unless they know something else, like, no, we, don't, we, we, we have more time than that. You don't have to worry about that. Every single time, yeah, Jeff, go ahead and do that. So the key They're is seeing the, your thought process. They're seeing and you're approaching it the way right. that they would, and they that, respect that. That's the thing. You've got to think like, you know, I tell people I run a department with mathematics, and they kind of laugh and go, that's what it's all about. If you show that you need to spend an extra 1000 here, you've got to prove to them where that extra 1000 either breaks even or puts it in the black for them mm-hmm. from some other area. And I've done that many, many times. We had a hairdresser on a show that everyone wanted to be the hairdresser, but she was local. And they kept bringing in hairdressers from L.A. And I said to her, why don't you department head this? Everyone wants you department head this. And she said, well, it's, it's, not, uh, it's, not, 
it's too much work. It's not enough money for me for the amount of work. I see how much work you put into this. I said, well, for one, if I could get you more money, a lot more money, would you be interested? She said, yeah, but you're not going to be able to do that. I go, yes, I am. I said, be prepared. If you do this, you have to learn like a fireman. When there's a fire, you run towards the fire. Your department head, the phone rings at 10 o'clock at night. You pick it up. On the mm-hmm. weekend, something needs to be done. You go do it. You have to own that job 24-7. They have bought you. Death by deal memo, I call it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, okay. And I thought, I've got an idea. I sat down and I figured out what it costs to bring a hairdresser over. Flights, per diem, housing, mm-hmm. um, turnarounds, Everything that costs more, a car, gas, everything that costs more by doing that. It was $74,000 for the season. Wow. I came up with a sheet of paper, and our producer was an ex-accountant. I came up with a sheet of paper that broke it all down, and it was, it was in the favor of production because it was probably more like 80000 but 74000 was the hard numbers that I could show. And I said to her, let's approach the production and say, Let's do a deal. We'll split the difference. She will be department head. You will find a way to pay her another, what, $37,000 through overtime, fictitious this, extra days, whatever. And they save 40 grand. And, they, and you save the other half. And, he's, and I had you know, a sheet, one for him, one for her, one for me. He looked at it and said, done. Now, she was making a lot more money than me, but I don't care. My win was being able to do that, being able to sell that idea as a win-win for everybody, for production, for for me, because I liked her and she was doing a good job. And sometimes hairdressers can be very crazy, as we all know. What are you talking about? I don't know know what you mean. Someone in our local calls it, um, um, what is it, Um, uh, TMH, too much hairspray. (laughs) <laughs> yes. It's kind of the term in the industry that for crazy hairdressers. Not that they're not all crazy, but enough of them are that if you're into the industry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. She wasn't. She was wonderful. Everybody liked her. The actress liked her. So it was a win for me, too. Well, I am going to say, just for a second, is that we both know amazing hairdressers that have, they're very level-headed and, yes. and they're good folks, but their tribe has that reputation. It does. You know, and it, it just takes so Don't few... give us any, like, hate mail. Don't, oh, I know. Don't I know. write and, Jeff and, look, and I. Uh, there, there's enough makeup artists that are crazy out there, exactly. too. I know. No, I've hired a bunch of them. Um, well, you hired me, so I hired you. you. Yeah, look at look at the, I look at myself in the mirror and go, "You're crazy." So, and, and there are fantastic hairdressers that are equal, but there is a there's enough of them that are crazy that that people, you know, and I always fight it too because as a makeup artist, we're well paid, sometimes underworked, sometimes overcredited. We are not the multi million dollar actors that we work for. Okay. No. And a lot of makeup and hair people kind of live through, you know, delusions of grandeur that they are these people. And, yes. you know, yeah, you can make a hundred, two hundred, even three hundred thousand dollars a year as a makeup artist. That's what they're making in an hour. These actors. We are not these actors. Do not try to emulate these actors, their behavior. The, 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 the you know the, that's a trap that. though isn't it because I, I can remember actually working with you on a show where we were at the ambassador hotel i think it was uh, maybe some film we were doing and some actor was getting there having somebody come down to detail their car you know whatever that costs right. the guy come and they do all that right right tons of money it's, it's it's not getting the g2 aircraft that's not the thing that's the temptation the temptation is that 
Yeah. When you're all of a sudden you're blowing money to have someone to do those right, things right, because right. You're, those people are in your world. You're thinking, oh, maybe right. I you should You've got to drive that. up in that fancy Mercedes, you know, that you're leasing, not even buying. It's a danger, isn't it? You have it? to wear that Rolex watch that makes it look like, and then you, these people, you know, that are making 100 grand a year and spending like a million a year, it looks like, then they go back to their one-room, you know, crappy little studio apartment, and all of their money is going to the illusion that they are the people that they work for. Cannot play in their world. You can be in their world, but you can't, you can't do the things right. that actors are doing. Something that I recommend when I talk to, to, to the makeup artists is that everyone in the makeup community wants to be a star makeup or hair person. You go with a star, you make good money, you don't have to fight for a job, you go with them, you come back, people respect you or fear you, and it's kind of a prized position. And I did it for years. I did it with The Rock. I did it with Arnold. I've done it with other people. And I've also department headed all those shows. And I have worked with so many other makeup and hair department heads that come in with their stars on my show, which I always highly welcome them. And I immediately get together with them and say, anything you need in my trailer, you need a space, you need supplies, you need help, you need peace and quiet, whatever it is, you come to me. So I want them to feel like it's part of them. And, and, you know, you get so much more with Honey the Vinegar, you know. And oh, yeah. Ribbons have all those divisions and all no, just did, it, it, and, and they know me. They know that I've department had a lot of shows. They know mm-hmm. I've been a star request. They know that I am their equal in that way. So they're going to treat me with respect. And they all appreciate it because they come in there feeling powerful because they're with their star, but also very secluded because they're not in a department. I bring them in the department, and I do everything I can to help them. And it only pays back in dividends. And everybody gets along. But the thing I tell people is when you are working with an actor or an actress, do not try to emulate their behavior because actors and actresses typically go through changes. Suddenly the phone isn't ringing anymore and they want a clean house. And they look at their behavior. Have they been drinking too much? Have they been acting badly? Have they been gambling? Have they been doing things that are hurting their reputation? And they look to clean house. I'm going to get rid of my accountant and my, 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 my attorney. I'm going to get rid of my mm-hmm. makeup and hair team. And they want to start over. If you have supported that behavior, that they no longer, you know, if, if, if you've been out drinking with them every weekend and now they're in AA, they're, you're gone. Don't be the actor or actress. You do your job, you're professional, and mm-hmm. then you get out of their life. Don't try to hang out with yeah. them and go golfing with them every weekend and all that because sooner or later they're going to change and they're going to clean house. Yep. It's a, it's a bad deal. We can't be really friends. I really, that's your client you're dealing with. It you is. You try to make it your friend. And, and we, we it are, trips it up. We are, we're all tools in the business. Yes, we have friendships. Yes, we have respect and dignity for each other. But we are all tools. I can be replaced in a heartbeat as a makeup department head. And most of the actors can be replaced. It doesn't mean you treat another human being like a tool, but mm-hmm. we are replaceable. And that's always a good thing to keep before you. Mike Westmore taught me that, actually. Good. When I was working for him on Star Trek, I said, he was dealing with something he was frustrated with. Mm-hmm. And I said, why are they treating you like that? They can't do this show without you. And, and it, without missing a beat, he says, they could have somebody here tomorrow doing this. That's right. And he, they wouldn't miss a beat. He always knew why he was there. Yeah. You two are like in that way. Yep. You've done a lot of feature film. And now you've done a lot of television. What's the difference? Um, good question. Um, when I got into the business, like I mentioned, I only wanted to do feature films. It was the, the top of the rung. I've done 
over 40 department head positions and fortunate to have done many that are 100 to 200 million dollar films, big films. I've also done over 300 episodes of television um, over the years, especially the last like 15 years um, as department head. I love them both. Of course, features, directors are very different. In a feature world, the director is the god. They're the final say. They want something, they get it. In the TV world, the directors, I actually feel sorry for them because they come into a long existing show. The actors all know their characters very well. They have seven or eight days to shoot it. Let's say they have three or four million dollars to shoot that. That new director, until they have some legs with this production company, has to get it in on budget or under, on time, not piss off the actors, and keep it with the same vein of the show. And not piss off even the crew, because if they piss off the crew, the crew has a lot of power. They can go, don't hire this guy again. He's really rude to us, or her. So they're always running scared. I almost feel sorry for them. A director for TV will typically come over and prep for a week, and then they'll spend a week and a half, two weeks shooting it. And for that, they get around fifty to $60,000. Fair amount of money. A TV director can make you know, 500000 a year, easily, and just jumping around to different shows. And when a show gets a director that they like, that fits in with the, the showrunner, and of course a showrunner on TV is the god, just like a director is for film. When the showrunner likes a director, then they can do three, four, five episodes a season for that show and maybe do many, many more over the, the years. And, you know, you get your favorite directors, and the cast has their favorite directors. And um, so that's a difference. You typically do about two pages a day when you feature with a feature film. Uh, you typically do about seven or eight pages a day with television, sometimes as many as, like, 15, which is crazy. <laughs> um, hours are similar. What's wonderful about television is it's a guaranteed amount of money. You can pretty much know within a, a few thousand dollars how much you're going to make that year, and you know when you're going to be off. Yes, I can go on that houseboat trip. Yes, we can go to Europe. Yes, we can go camping. You can say that to your kids. You can say that to your friends. You can say it to yourself. When you're in the feature world, it's very hard because you're used to just saying yes. You do a feature. You have a few weeks, a few months off. Another one comes along. You take it. You're, you're like a fireman at work. You always know where, you're, you know where your pants are and where the fire engine is, and you're ready for that bell to go off. With television, you turn the bell off. Yeah, it is a little different world, but there's so much more money in television now than there was when, when I was doing a lot yes. of it. Yeah, we were doing 24 episodes a season. Mm -hmm. Now they do like six or maybe 10, Yeah, uh, at least in, you know, in, in streaming and cable. Right. Well, that's kind of the way it's going towards network also. I remember when, when we finished off Hawaii Five-0 after season 10 a couple of years ago, I went to our showrunner, Peter Lankoff, and I said, Peter, why is it we have great ratings? We're, we're, we're having you know, 10 million people a week watch this. We're in 215 markets around the world. Why is this ending now? He said, well, several reasons. He said, for one, you no longer make back-end money when you, when you sell 100 episodes to another production company that then airs that for the next 10 years. We now all have apps. CBS, you want to watch Hawaii Five-0? You either tune it in each week on, on TV or you get the app for $6 a month and you watch it that way. You don't get to watch it anymore on Netflix. It's not sold to Netflix or any of these other people. So you don't have back-end money that way because people typically won't sign up for CBS because they want to watch season 8 of Hawaii Five-0. 
You know, they, they, they've already watched it the one time and now they don't need to watch it anymore. Hmm. And also he said that in the future, he believes that most episodes will, most TV shows will go four or five years. That's about it. So now you're not getting 25, 24, 25 episodes in mm-hmm. a season. You're getting far less, sometimes 8, 9, 10, 11. And then they also run a lesser amount because shows get very expensive. Five O started at about $3.5 million an episode. It was about $4 million near the end. And what happens is, of course, you have all the increases of costs, but you also have the actors that say, I don't want to make a million a year. I want to make two million a year. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, when the new one comes up, I want to make three million. So, you know, I, I look at shows like Grey's Anatomy and I realize why they kill so many characters in that because they can't afford a dozen yeah. people that have been on it for 15 seasons. You know, because they have, all want more money. They all want more money. You'd have $10 million an episode instead of the original probably two or three when it started and it just gets to the point where it's not profitable. Mm-hmm. That does happen. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed at the talent they can get now, though, in, in television. You can get anybody they want. Remember that thing? It was like you, you, if you were a feature film actor, you weren't doing television. No. That or, was... or commercials. Arnold used to do all these <laughs> Japanese commercials because they'd air over in Japan. Oh, really? He figured it would. And that's the way it was back then. You figure that just it lowers your, your worth as a $20 million a picture actor when you're doing commercials. But now you get Tom Hardy can go do Peaky Blinders. You know, yep. and, then, and then get right back into doing features. And it, it, it doesn't have that stigma that it did. Not even close. You know, you, you see these coming attractions and think, wow, I want to see that movie. That's filled with stars. It looks big budget. And it says, you know, prime television or Netflix. And you're like, they're doing this for television? Right. What they yeah. do, they have, they have uh, endless dollars. That, that does happen. Like there's that Sean Penn one that, uh, that's got such a great makeup on that Kazu did. Um, I think it's called Gaslight or something mm-hmm. like that. I was like, wow, this thing's a TV? It looks, everything about it seems feature. Yeah. There's not that, that chasm anymore between the not quality of uh, feature film and television. And it's wonderful for people in the film crew business and makeup artists that we don't have three networks anymore doing this in, in a handful of studios. It's endless now. I remember somebody telling me that um, oh, we're going to shop this this pilot uh, at places other than the, the, the networks. I go, why? Because there's such a choice. There's such a variety now. And then they start bidding against each other. And it used to be that a network would get stacks and stacks of pilots to do. Well, they don't get that anymore. They only get a few because now those pilots are going to other places. And there's so much more work. There's so many more makeup artists working today than there were 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember when they were so worried there that, oh, I thought CGI was going to replace mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And no, it didn't happen. There's more I mean, people working. It's, and, and as you know, that's a question that's been asked of me for decades now. You know, are you worried about this? Is this happening? And it is happening, but it's happening very slowly. Mm-hmm. The big shops that are still making practical effects are out there, and they're still making practical effects. It's still cheaper, and there are certain directors that really require the realism of doing it in camera, as they say, the practical effects. I mean, it used to be 15, 20 years ago, I'd be in a production meeting, and they would say, okay, Jeff, you know, we're going to blow that head up. What's that going to take? And I said, well, it's going to take, you know, a few weeks of prep. It's going to take a $10,000 head for one take. Um, I suggest we do it in a second unit so that the buildup mm-hmm. to it, the shooting of it, and possibly a second take doesn't take up the whole day of first unit that's very expensive. We just have a skeleton crew. 
and they'd say, okay, you know, so that, all of that costs this much. And then they'd say, of special effects, of visual effects, what do you, oh, we can do it for 30 grand. Well, you'd think that that's cheaper, but we're talking time. Mm -hmm. They don't have to stop for one minute other than maybe a, a pass with a, you know, a, a blue screen or a, a green screen or, or, or some sort of reference, and then they do it in post. So it's not slowing down the most expensive part of the film that the producers are the most accountable for. And mm -hmm. that's, that's principle photography. And it seems like the director, too, gets a little, it's less pressure for him to go, Very oh, that's going to so. be done in post. Yeah, we'll do that in post. We can tweak it for weeks. I don't want to, I got actors and yeah. people walking around here and a producer going, hey, you know, we're spending $100,000 extra today if you do that. Um, it's just so much easier to do it in post. But we still are doing a lot of practical effects which I'm happy to see. And another thing that's happening a lot in our industry is, strangely, didn't see this coming, this tattoo work. Mm -hmm. It used to be we were adding tattoos, and now, you know, especially you in television, and you having done Hawaii Five-0, I bet that you were all over that. It's like, oh, there's Thousands of tattoos, tattoos being seen all the time. Right. So you got to deal with what, legal on that to yes. find out, like, can it, is this going to work? How much do we need to change it right. to get them to sign off on it? And you have to do that in like a day or two because with a film, you have weeks and months of lead up. You get a script, you know what it's going to require, you know who to start talking to to get things made, get things tested, to get things legal. And with television, you read it and okay, this guy comes in and he has a bunch of Yakuza tattoos. Well, first you have to find out if he has any real tattoos because on extras, typically you don't have to worry about approving them. There's been so many lawsuits in our business from tattoos that have been seen that then the tattoo artist sues the company for some sort of royalties and they win. They cause a DVD not to be released mm -hmm. in time, like with um, um, The Hangover. And yeah, the so they're very way. afraid of that. So you gotta get pictures, then you've gotta get it all approved, like within a day a lot of times, to either keep a change, because you only have to change it a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. If it says Coca-Cola, you know, it has a, there are certain things you just cannot show. Mm -hmm. But you can alter it a little bit so you don't really know what it is anymore. So many times we end up covering tattoos and then adding tattoos over the top of that, which all have to be approved also. Right. So we would do that almost every day. I mean, we would put on tattoos or, would do, or take away tattoos almost every day on Hawaii Five-0 for 10 years. Yeah, I am figuring that would be a constant for you guys. Constant. So I know the rules and regulations very well with it. I know the materials. I know the people that make them, what works, what doesn't, especially in a humid area. You know, with all the things that you've done and you've been so successful, you've lived in Hawaii for over a decade, you've, you've done the feature film, you've done the television, you've, had, you've done the star request, you've done all these big action films, you've traveled the world. If you could get in Mr. Wells' machine, mm -hmm. go back in time, is there anything you would change? Well, that's a good question. I've never heard that before. What would I change? I mean, we all adapt to the reality of the business in front of us every day because we know we can't change it. But you're asking a hypothetical that what if we could? Uh, wow. What would I change? I'd make sure that the glue 355 was still legal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a silicone-based glue that we had for years that then, uh, I guess it was putting holes in the ozone or something. So we, we took that away. I still have a jar of it from Dow Corning with their label on well, it. Where is it? When can I come visit? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, would you, would you, would you approach your, your career any different? Would you make any different choices there? People said, Jeff, you, even producers said, Jeff, you should produce. And 
the way I look at it is, as a producer, for one, I have a great passion for the creativity of makeup. I love nothing more than to come up with an idea to then sell the idea. Is it right for the project? How much does it cost? What are the logistics of it? And then put all that together, test it, and see it in the film or the TV show, and know it wouldn't be there if I wasn't there. I love that process. As a producer, you get to have a say in that. Once you get up the, the, the rung a bit, you mm -hmm. can make a lot of money. But I learned that you have to be willing to kiss the ass of people that you can't stand. Mm. I don't have to do that. If I have an actor that I don't feel right, I put him in a different chair. I, you know, As department head and with my experience now, I don't have to say yes to things. I've gotten very good at saying no. You just have to be dead sure that you're right. Because mm -hmm. if you say, oh, maybe, Jeff, can you get those three bodies to us by tomorrow? Maybe, that means yes. They're not going to take no for right. an answer. If you say... I'll try. Well, even that, I know now to say yes or no. I yeah. know what the answer is. I can say, I can guarantee you, no matter how much money we throw at it, unless we grab some dummies out of the, the, uh, the prop department, you're not going to get what you want for this film. I need a week, and then I can put it together to the point where it's gonna, you're going to be able to edit it in. Well, when you say that with an authority and with a, with a knowledge, then they go, okay. But if you say maybe, then they're going to expect yes. But you'd better be dead right. Because I've told directors no, and they get very upset. Oh, they don't want to hear no. They don't want to hear that. So but sometimes get, they need to hear it. They need to hear it, and you've got to be dead right with it. It's so much better to say no than to say yes and then oh, have yeah. it. You never regret have saying the train no. Wreck. But like my dad taught me early on, he said, don't be afraid to stand up in a room full of powerful, intimidating people, like a production meeting and producers and directors, and tell them what you think. Just make sure you're dead right. And I've utilized that so many times. They end up respecting you more for it in the end. Oh, very much. A quick story uh, that I love to tell when we were prepping Scorpion King with a Rock for Universal. It was Chuck Russell, director that I'd worked with before. And we were testing different women to be the lead actress. And we tested five or six different women. And Chuck Russell had his favorite. And, you know, we made everybody up. We're now in a screening room with the studio heads, the producers, casting, makeup, hair, wardrobe, the director, the DP, director of photography. And we're watching all of these. And afterwards, they, they had a little powwow with all the powers. And they called myself and Peter. Peter was on it again, hairdresser. And he said, guys, come on over here. What's your opinion? I'm like, oh, man. I have a very strong opinion here. It's going to go over like a fart in church. I said, gentlemen, I know that Chuck here is very much for this woman. And she is certainly gorgeous. She was in all these rock videos and things. She had a very hard kind of a almost Hillary Swank could be a man or a woman look. I said, in my opinion, it's going to be harder to make her look good because she has some angles that are, are just not as flattering. And that'll be between us, the creative people, and the DP. And the DP later on came to me and said, thank you for saying what you said because she would have been tough. And I said, guys, there's something else that I cannot, I cannot not say there's going to be a segment of the audience that's going to think that she's a guy. Mm. And the director went, oh, Jeff, because he knew she was gone. And everybody in the room went, he's right. Yeah. We're going to hire Kelly Who instead, which they didn't. But, man, you better be dead right when you're going to say something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, you're putting it all out there. Yeah. Okay, this is guy that hired me. Chuck Russell hired me, and I just threw him under the bus. But <laughs> somebody asked me my opinion, and I gave him my straight opinion. Yeah. And that is good. Yeah. You are a planner. Mm -hmm. 
not too many people think about how they're going to finish their career in this business. I think artistic people, that's what they are anyway. A young person thinks, I just want to get in there. I want to get my foot in the door. I'm going to work. I'm going to, I'm going to establish myself. And, and they, they get in there, especially artists, anything artistic. They don't think about how they're going to have longevity, really, and then also have an end game artists all the time, they think, well, if I just get in there, it's all going to be fine. And then they get about halfway through the career. Now they realize, damn, we're work. I'm working really hard. I, how, how, how does, how do I end up stopping that? And I was wondering, cause I know that you have such, uh, you're planning so much. What is a great way to have an end game in this business? Well, I, I'm, I'm now 63. Okay. I have the passion. I have the energy. I have the physicality they're of a much younger person. I work out a lot. I'm mm -hmm. very energetic. I still love what I do. I could retire right now. I have no interest. I even thought, okay, I win the lottery. I win millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And we all think about this. You know, how, so many people would say, screw you, take this job and shove it. And they'd go off and live on a desert island or something. I would continue to work. I'd just be very selective because I'm yeah. that enthusiastic and passionate about it. And I'm to the point now that I love to teach. It's not just teaching makeup because... You can learn that from anybody. It's teaching a theory. It's teaching a system. It's teaching a win-win way to look at it so everybody in the room is happy and you get your way still. So I still have a few more years of that. I'll probably work another three or four years because I can't do the 84 hours a week like I did for years, you know, at 63. But I don't mind working my butt off. I, you know, I go in on the weekends for free every show that I do, and I work for a few hours in the trailer just catching things up. Of course, as a department head, you're working in the morning before you go into work, and afterwards, you know, I go through the call sheets several times. My call sheets are very, very specific. They're mm -hmm. all color coded, with who does whom, with notes on it, with changeovers, with. All of that, I go to the ADs and say, look, if you do this and you flip these two scenes, it's only going to take 10 minutes of makeup, which we can do on set. Compared to if you do it the way it's written now, it's going to take 30 minutes. Oh, thanks, Jeff. You know, you have to think like an AD. So I still love to do it. I'm sure I will get out of it. I'm much, I always, the way I look at films now, because there's nothing left on my bucket list. I've been able to, I've had the success and the awards and the money and the travel the reputation, the resume, all of that, and I'm very fortunate to have that because it's not a guarantee. You can come in with my attitude and, and, and fail miserably, too. I had doors open for me from people like my family and Stan Winston, Arnold Schwarzenegger, that have been very, very fortunate, and I can only take so much credit for that. There is a certain... Somebody's you know, over, overseeing me and, and, and opening doors for me many times. But the... Um, I'm not ready to get out yet. I will do it when I know I'm ready, mm -hmm. which I'm guessing, it's always been like three or four years in the future for the last few years. When I finished Hawaii Five-0 and COVID hit, it was actually good timing for me because I was planning on taking about a year off. My girlfriend at the time that I met many years ago up here in, uh, in, in Portland when I was doing Leverage on Match.com, uh, who lives up here, she unfortunately was diagnosed with early onset dementia. Mm. Uh, about four years ago, and she passed away recently. But I chose when I came back to be her sole caregiver then and really take care of her. She was my girlfriend. She wasn't my wife, but I, it was my calling to take care of her. And if anyone out there who's dealt with someone like this, it, it is a, it's a very depressing, frustrating thing because every day is worse than the last day, and you know the next yeah. day is even going to be worse. And it was we, a gift of love. 
it was a gift of love, but I don't look at it. You know, so many people say, oh, Jeff, that was so wonderful you did that. I, was, I didn't, it just was a calling. The second she said that, I remember Alex O'Loughlin, who played um, uh, McGarrett on Hawaii Five O. I said, Alex, can you come out here? I want to talk to you about something. Because I just found out about it and looked up FTD, which is frontotemporal dementia, what she had. And that it typically kills people six years or so after diagnosis. And it's a horrible uh, dementia. And I told him about it, and I broke down into tears. And he goes, Jeff, what are you going to do? She's not your wife. She's got family. She's got some money. What are you going to do? And I go, I'm going to stay with her. <laughs> I didn't have to think about it. I just knew. Yeah. I knew I had to be it. with her. And not one minute I regret that. She's passed away a few months ago. So I, mm. I forewent on all my you know, shows. I would turn stuff down. I did a little bit of stuff here and there that was local. But I chose to do that. And you know, now I'm getting back. I'm back with my family, my friends. Mm. I'm back to being very physical again. Um, and I'm back with, ready to rock and roll in the, in the makeup room. Yeah, you were very quiet there for a few years. And I was yeah. like, wow, I haven't heard from Jeff. Yep. And you, know, you just seemed very, very quiet. And it was great running into you a few weeks ago. At the makeup school because mm-hmm. we just picked up right where we left off. Exactly. Yeah, it feels it feels good to be back again because it's also part of yeah. the healing. I know if she was still here, Belinda, if you were still here, you'd be saying, "Get back to work, become Jeff again." Yeah, and do that. Yeah, and that's so good, buddy. Thanks for taking the time to kind of tell us about your your road and your travels and what you've done. You've uh, like I said it before. I'm gonna say it again. You're one of the smart guys in the industry and. And always uh, have great takeaways when you and I chat. Thanks for making this happen. You're welcome. And I want to say something to your audience that I say every time I do an interview, including with you, um, which kind of shocks people at times. Any one of the audience out there, whether you're a makeup artist, a hairdresser, somebody in the industry, somebody who wants to get into the industry, and you have questions, I am always available. You can find me on Facebook. When you're my friend, and I'll friend you if you, if you, if you um, uh, do a friend, friend request, my email, my phone number is there. I do this every day, and I have mm-hmm. for decades. And I have people coming up too. to me. And, yeah, I have people coming to me all the time saying, Jeff, you know, 20 years ago you sat down with me and did, 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 or I called you, and I could I call you back? And knowing I did. And, oh, yeah, you talked to me for two hours. That feels so good, and it's, and it's a give back from all what people have done for me over the years. So anybody in your audience that has any questions, whether it's specifically makeup, the politics, doing deals, the business, whatever it is, reach out to me because I will call you back. That's awesome, man. Thank would, you for making that possible would, for would everybody. Would you do me a favor? I just thought of something with this what? magazine behind you here. Yeah. I'll be right back. I got one right here. Oh, you got one right there. You have two of these. Amazing. I got I have a few of them. I'm going to have you sign This them. is a, okay, this, this is a magazine that, uh, of course, Michael did the most amazing makeup artist magazine and trade shows for so many years and still is the leader in educating people in our industry around the world. And I was fortunate to be on this cover a few years ago. And you wrote something in this that I thought, I just read it again recently. Oh, yeah? And I thought, all right, Michael, that was so sweet. Would you read that? What did I write here? I said, warning, Jeff Don is very contagious. (laughs) His condition is enthusiasm and optimism. If you spend time in the same room with him or even on the phone, there is a high probability you will catch his fever. It's a passion about life. Organization and details are labor of love for Jeff. It's no wonder with attributes like these, he is department heading action films, the magnitude of True Lies, Cliffhanger, and Terminator 2. So be careful reading this. You might catch a fever. That's funny. I don't even remember Isn't writing that. Isn't that cool? Now, but I just, it is something I would say. I read this recently. And it's so you. That is so sweet. You know, but thank you. 
It's good, man. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. It's a pleasure and it's an honor. Thanks for bringing it out. Thank you. Thank you.